tradition unlike any other. And no, I'm not talking about your annual Browns introductory head coach press conference in Berea. It is the Selby is Godcast. With TJ Zupi, that's me. And Zach Mike, that's him. What's up, brother? TJ, do you ever study the analytics behind our, our podcast numbers? I have quite frequently, yeah. I pull them up from time to time and see how long people are listening, how often people are listening. And all of that information feels like it's important. Like, I can put it to good use. And I'm not so fearful of it. But yet, it seems like there are still some people out there who, anytime they hear that scary word analytics, they want to yell witch and start the Salem witch trials and burn people at the stake. Why, why do we do this? Analytics is just a fancy word for information, right? Like, <laughs> it's not even, the funny thing is, it's not always even numbers related. Aren't, anytime you make a decision in your life, even if you don't consult a spreadsheet or a computer, aren't you doing analysis on the situation and thinking about, well, there's a 55% chance that this happens, a 45% chance that this happens. And uh, are, aren't you thinking about things analytically, even when it isn't necessarily done with data? Why is, it, why, why, is, why is this still a boogeyman hiding in the closet in the year 2020? Come on, tell me why. It's honestly just another word for, like, thought. <laughs> like, like, it's really, I mean, I think about, I, I'm, <laughs> I can see why people in Berea would be scared of that then. <laughs> I'm notoriously late to everything. You guys have a joke that when I say I'll be somewhere in 15 minutes, that's 15 misel minutes, which I don't know what the, the converter says, but it, that probably means like an hour and a half. But I spend so much time trying to map out every day and make sure I'm on time with certain things that I think it actually ends up making me late to everything. But that, that process and that, that trying to make the right decisions to make sure I'm doing this at this time and I'm, you know, knocking this off my checklist, like that's, like, I would never think of that and be like, I'm using analytics to plan out my day. But it's like, that's, as, it's really that simple. Like, it, it's not, you know, they're not like finding out some hypotenuse and using trigonometry to determine what, whether they should, you know, throw a slant or run a draw play. It's not anything like that. And it's, it's so funny to me. And, and it's, it's weird because in baseball, it's finally become accepted. At least, I, I think, for the most part, it's become accepted that front offices use advanced statistics and metrics, and they take in a wealth of information that maybe they didn't 10 years ago, and we just put all of this under this umbrella called analytics. And in baseball, it's accepted. And I think you're starting to see it more in basketball. And for some reason in football, there's like still this stigma um, <laughs> that's just like it's it's a worse word to use than like fuck or any ethnic slur or something like it's it's ridiculous goodness uh i hope we haven't <laughs> got to that place um yeah you're right it's it's been a part of baseball for at least the past several years where even if you don't fully buy into everything i think most people would accept that it is some form of information that can be helpful in football. Yeah. It, it has not been as widely accepted and it, you get, I, it, 
to put myself back into the position of what it was like in baseball, trying to to break the mold, and even for myself, trying to to wrap my brain around uh, the way you thought about the game maybe isn't necessarily the best way to think about the game, and evolving and learning and constantly looking for ways that we can better view the game. Um, it, it just seems like in the sport of football, it's it's magnified to a, a position where so many people are fighting against it. And I don't know if it's just the, the thought of the unknown being scary, and I get that. And I think mm-hmm. part of it is on the the franchises, or in this case, the Browns, to help uh, convey it a little bit better to the fan base and the media. And it's up to the reporters, too, to ask the right questions and take it upon themselves to learn it themselves. Uh, but I also think it's just important to have the translation. We talk about this in baseball. You you can use data, but it's those that translate the, da- the data to the players, why you're doing such a, a thing, or even to management, talking to managers, why why are we making this decision in this situation and translating it so it's not it's not just gobbledygook to to somebody and i think it's upon the browns in this situation if they're going to lean this way towards analytics and i promise we're not talking all football today but <laughs> it does relate a little bit to baseball i think it's on the the organization to to offer that translation to the fans and and whether that's through Responses at press conferences, which get a little bit difficult because there's a lot of uh, you can get deep into the weeds pretty quickly as you kind of peel back the layers on whatever you're talking about. But I also think it's just important to if you have to hire people or you just have to have people on your staff. If it's in a broadcast, if it's on a television show regarding your football team, I think all organizations could just take the time to communicate it a little bit better so that it's not that boogeyman hiding under the bed in the closet, that it is something that the fans can understand why you're making the moves that you are. And then, then once we know a little bit more into the psyche of them, we can, we can judge whether those moves are smart, whether they, they're analytically sound, so to speak. It doesn't have to be a scary thing if you help communicate it to the people that that are, are wanting and, and needing to know these sorts of things. No, you're, you're completely right. And I, I think it's like, from my perspective, it, I would want to know what sorts of measurements a front office is using to make their decisions. And we still don't know all of them. I mean, it's, they have stuff that's more advanced than is probably publicly available. They have certain preferences um, that maybe other teams don't. Uh, and it, it, you're right, it, it's on. It's definitely on the reporters to pass this along and to educate the fan base and say, hey, this is why they think this player is primed to do this. And these are the metrics they use to kind of, you know, this is what they saw in them. And I, I think that's maybe where it gets lost in football because it's not as mainstream there yet. And you have reporters maybe who have been around for a really long time and and have certain ways of doing it. And also, you know, in football, it seems like it's always just one thing to the next, one game to the next, one hiring to the next, especially in Cleveland, where it's like you're rarely talking about the actual product on the field. So it's it's you've never needed to learn about the analysis behind play calls or certain packages, stuff like that. So, you know, it's it's. It's tough. I, I had someone comment on a story a couple of weeks ago and say, 
Like, I cannot read your writing because you use all these advanced stats, and I just cannot, like, care, and it makes it impossible to read. And the funny thing is, in that particular story, I used War once, and I used WRC Plus once, <laughs> and that was it. And it's like, okay, I mean, this is pretty elementary, and, you know, you're talking about six letters out of 5,000 letters in the story, <laughs> so <laughs> if that's ruining the experience, I can't help you, but... And, and I also think it is important, and I struggle with this too. Every time I write an article, I want to make sure that we don't have that happen. I want yeah. people to reach out. I want them to, to – I want to help bring people along the same way that when I read something that I find interesting, that even I find complicated and I want to dig deeper on, I want to reach out. I want to find out more information uh, on what that person is doing. I don't want it to be a scary thing. And, and I think part of it is our responsibility to not just – look down our noses at somebody that doesn't understand and scoff and say, well, you think batting average is a great, great way to, to, to evaluate a player. So we're just going to leave you behind. No, it's, it's up to us to always try to bring as many people in as possible. And, and I'll take my own responsibility in that. And there are times I don't think I do a good enough job of explaining why things are important. And it doesn't always mean that in this case with, with the, Let's we're we're t we're talking about the Browns. Just get high, they hire their coach, and analytics has been this buzzword for the past several weeks now. Um, it doesn't mean you have to agree with the organization's decision to do these things, but I think it is important as uh, if someone is in a position where you are conveying the conveying the message isn't the right term, but you understand what I'm saying. When you're translating it to the fans, you have to at least give the organization's perspective on why they're doing what they're doing before you offer your opinion on right. whether or not you think it sucks or, or, or it's a good decision. Yeah. I mean, I may think that Jake Bowers is that Jake Bowers has no potential and, you know, he's going to be a bust, but I can still tell you, well, here is here are maybe the advanced numbers that you won't find on, I don't know, MLB.com that, are why the Indians were interested in him. I think that that's, that's the thing. You're just, you're doing your homework. You're giving, you're being thorough. And I, it's tough because I don't want to get to a point where I'm explaining what every single stat means and every single story. And every time I use it, because at some point we just got to like accept these and know what they mean, but there's always going to be a reader who, who might not. And, and I probably could have explained what WRC plus was, or I try, I try to say like, you know, a hundred is league average. And so just, evaluate it based on that um but also like that shouldn't ruin the experience because you you're still by using the stats however i use them i'm still sh you're still understanding what what i'm getting at um and, and it's you know and, and there are other outlets and other writers who you know i see it every day where someone is like talking about a reliever and they're using win loss record. And I'm like, not only is this pointless for a starting pitcher, but for a reliever, like, what are we doing here? And that it's, it's misinforming the fan base. And it's, it's honestly that sort of stuff that I think does more harm than even <laughs> explaining what the advanced stats mean does good. I've, um, so. I've told Go this story before, but now's a good enough time as any. Uh, you remember who got the win in the the infamous walk off inside the park home run by Tyler Daquin? Do you remember? Uh, I don't. But I'll no, tell you. I don't. I'll tell you who it was. Um, and of course, that game they're behind in the ninth inning. Was it Jose Ramirez hit the? Oh, Jose Ramirez run? tied it. 
And then you had all the guys in the dugout yelling, he's prone, talking about Roberto Osuna, um, who had been pretty unhittable all year. And then they knew that was the night they could get him. And then Naquin follows it up with the walk-off. So they come from behind. They score two in the ninth, one on the walk-off inside the Parker. And the win that night went to Jeff Manship. <laughs> and uh, I remember, I mean, the ending was so insane. And as a writer and reporter, all of us were just a little out of it <laughs> because of just how insane that ending was. And I'm, at, at the time, I'm just feeling loopy and everything was hilarious. <laughs> as as Manship walked by, I, I nudged one of you guys and I said, should I say congrats on your win? <laughs> <laughs> And remember, you looked at me like, dude, calm down. <laughs> it was... But to your point, Jeff Manship did just so much that night to help the Indians win that game. So, <laughs> yes, of course, pitcher and reliever win-loss record is is supremely important. Um, and I do think, getting back to the point uh, that I was trying to make, that it's up to us, as much as it is the fans to want to open themselves up to it, it's up to us to try to explain it as best as possible and learn as much about the way that the organization uh, is now doing things. And it's easier for us in baseball because it's been a slow thing over many years that, um, that has gradually gotten to us to the point that it is now. In football, they're just approaching that, uh, that threshold that has not, uh, you know, may, maybe some teams have used numbers and data to, to back up some of their decisions, but it's not as widely as, as accepted as it is in baseball. Um, mm-hmm. So that's going to take some time. For everyone to get used to to thinking that way, but it is the the way that the the organization appears to be going, and you're doing your readers a disservice. The way I would think that I would be doing my readers a disservice if I didn't try to explain exactly the way the organization was thinking, right or wrong, whether you agree with it or you think it's a stupid decision. It's still our responsibility to to convey that as best as we 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 can. Yeah, I, I agree 100. Um, percent So let's talk Astros. So by now, everyone has probably seen what Major League Baseball has has leveled upon the Astros. But if you hadn't, $5 million, that's the fine for the Astros in their, their cheating scandal of 2017 with, uh, with them stealing signs and using technology to do it. And, and a very, it seems a very elaborate way of going about trying to get signs relayed to, to the hitters to know what was coming. But $5 million... Top two draft choices in two drafts, and Jeff Lunau and A.J. Hinch were both suspended for a year, and then the Astros turned around within seemingly minutes and fired both of them, which at the time I texted you, it's pretty pretty clear to me that that would be a career ender. Um, but we'll see. But that was the, the punishment laid down for Major League Baseball. No players were were suspended or, or any sort of punishment to the players, but Alex Cora... Is uh, is that Simpsons gif with the the character sitting on the bus rocking back and forth saying I'm in trouble? <laughs> uh, Cora was the bench coach at the time with the Astros. Now the the manager of the Red Sox, and the Red Sox have had their own issues uh, in the past several years with apparent technology and sign stealing and, and all sorts of things. So, what was your first impression? Did you think it was? Did you did you feel like the punishment fit the crime? Kind of. I mean, my first impression was, wow. Um, I think I was walking the dog in the woods on a trail, and... You didn't happen to see my cat while you were out there, right? No, I'm sorry about Zeus. Come home, Zeus. 
and my phone, you know, I got like multiple notifications at once and I, you know, it was Rosenthal and then Passon and then Rosenthal. And it's like, I was trying to keep up because they were all tweeting different parts of this. And I think I audibly said, holy shit, because I thought that they would hand down a pretty significant penalty, but I didn't think it would be so profound. And I wasn't sure if it would be enough to send a message to the rest of the league to say, Hey, like this will end your career. So don't even bother. Um, and then, yeah, when Jim Crane holds a press conference an hour later and fires them on the spot, it's like, it was kind of cool. It was like reality <laughs> TV almost. Um, and I, it's, I don't know. I mean, I know people want the title vacated. Look, I covered Ohio State. This happens in football all the time. Vacating titles means nothing. I mean, it's like, okay, you take a banner down, but like, like <laughs> I'll never forget the, you know, the Ohio State Sugar Bowl victory against Arkansas in 2011 was vacated because of Tattoogate. Well, guess what? I know I was probably blackout drunk for a couple of those nights leading up to the game, but I still remember being in New Orleans. Like, <laughs> yeah. I remember having some hand grenades and watching Terrell Pryor put on a nice show. Like, I was there. The game happened. <laughs> Are they collecting the championship rings that they handed out? From yeah, the- I mean... All right, uh, that, uh, turn that back in. We need all of those. <laughs> yeah. So, I, like, it, it's... I don't know what more they could have done on that front. I, I'm... A couple things here. Number one, and I know I texted this to you, and we can get into this more in a minute, but I feel like something should have happened with the players because to just completely skate free on this is a little weak, in my opinion. But I also understand because, number one, they got immunity for basically testifying what happened. And number two, it would get a little bit wishy-washy with just like, how do you make sure you have every single player involved accurately penalized? I don't know. It's kind of a slippery slope. But also, I'm so curious to see what happens to the Astros moving forward because they're already kind of on the backside of this window. I mean, I know they lost Garrett Cole, Verlander, and Granke are old. George Springer has one year before free agency. Correa has two years before free agency, I think. They still might be the best team in baseball. Um, they still have a really good team, but they're not infallible. I think that bullpen's a little suspect. I think the rotation, I mean, they, they, they need some young kids to come up. Problem is they traded four young kids for Zach Granke last year. Point is, like, I, I think there is an end to the window coming up, and then you're not going to have first and second round picks for two years, and, you know, you've, you're basically going to have a, a revamped front office, You've got this stigma of it's the Astros and like, do you want to deal with that? I'm just interested to see where this goes because this could have long lasting implications. And it's just, just, yeah, it should be on this group. Yeah. Um, And it would be nice if you could sit there and, and feel like you got every single player that was part of this and, and lay some punishment upon them. But as you said, it's, I don't, I don't know that you can get everybody. I don't know to what level, how do you decide who is more guilty than other people? To me, it's more important. How do you make sure that this doesn't, that you limit this moving forward? And I, th- I think if you at least put it in a position where you, know, you had AJ Hinch saying, I didn't support it, but it didn't stop it. And I think that's bullshit to begin with, to just say it like that. 
I don't think you're taking an, enough responsibility in this situation. And it's easy to say, well, I didn't support it, but I didn't stop it. Maybe that's the case, but still, it, it kind of smells odd to me. Well, how about what Luna said? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Out of but the then, Richard Nixon playbook, I'm not a crook. And then just <laughs> blames it on like the players and lower level employees. Like, I'm above this. Like, come but, on. But, but the thing is, you're in a position, even if that's the case, you're in a position where you, you oversee everything. And if it happens on your watch, then you have to be punished. And you need to know what's going on inside your organization. So mm-hmm. to me, it at least puts it in a, in a space where you're seeing essentially, in my mind, the way that this goes is you probably ended the career of, of both Hinch and Lunau, uh, if not just severely derailed it. And so a manager in a position that's similar and sees this sort of thing happening in their own organization, they're not going to do what A.J. Hinch said he did, which is not condone it, but not do anything to stop it. No, you're going to stop it because if you get caught, it's going to be your head that rolls. Mm -hmm. So you now have a, a vested interest in making sure you shut this kind of shit down in the years moving forward. Now, I don't know how, how, this extends into Major League Baseball. We said it at the time in 2018 when there was a mysterious, not hooded figure, but guy in a suit filming into the Indians' dugout with his Nokia whatever at the time. Uh, (laughs) We said it at the time, this probably happens more around Major League Baseball than we even know. Sure. So I don't know how far this extends to other teams that are doing something similar. But it is up to Major League Baseball to at least put enough hurdles in place that it makes a team think twice, three times, four times about it. You might say, well, the the Astros get to keep their championship. There's nothing that can be done about that now. You you can't vacate it. There's no going back and saying, fan, you know, you can't pull out the men in black memory stick and and erase it from their memory. It's 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 there. It happened. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't crown a different champion. You can't say, oh, well, the Dodgers should should get this because you don't know how the rest of the playoffs in the American League go. I mean, it's just there's way too many tentacles there to try to untangle everything. So all of that said, there's nothing you can really do about the past, but you can try to impact the future. And I feel like while the punishment maybe was a little bit on the light side, if, if I had if, if it's not something where I can say that there are shades of gray, if it's just black or white, yes or no. I feel like it's pretty much on the nose. Yeah. I, I mean, and, they keep going. and we'll see what, we'll see what happens to Alex Cora too. That will be even right. more interesting. And, and maybe that's even more of a deterrent moving forward. Yeah. It's, do you feel like if you were Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff and I guess Paul Dolan, would this have any bearing on, on, how you act like do you think the Astros will be worse in 2020 because of this I don't think I don't think not to an extreme maybe maybe it weighs on them a little bit but I really they're still a really talented team that in my mind despite what the the Yankees have done this offseason and I still felt felt like they're right there neck and neck for the best team in the American League okay do you? Know. I, no, and I, I actually wanted to. <laughs> I was I should run this by you first. I thought it would be fun to debate the top five teams in the American League on a podcast at some point. So we should save that. But I, I, 
I'm not as high on the Astros, and even before this. Um, I just think more would need to break their way in 2020 than the last few years. And also, they're not going to know what pitches are coming, so that's going to hurt too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, now see, that's what's going to be really interesting. Say Alex Bregman gets off to a slow start. What's the narrative going to be there? Yeah. Absolutely. Say, say Jose Altuve struggles against breaking balls, which could just be because that's in the randomness of baseball and small sample sizes. It could very well happen where a guy is just not as good as he normally is in the, coming out of the gates first month or so. But you know what the narrative isn't going to be that, well, they were cheating before. And so now it'll call these the careers of players that have been part of the Astros for the past couple of years now into question. And that's probably not fair because I don't, you still have to be really good to do what they've done. And I don't question the talent level, but it is part of the, the gray area where you just don't know. And once narratives start running out of control, there's nothing that can be done to stop it. Think about it. It's a Wednesday morning. Alex Bregman wakes up, goes outside, takes out the dog and realizes, oh man, it's garbage day. Goes and gets the garbage can. And of course, all he can think about is, man, I miss my old manager. We had such a good thing. It sucks that we got caught. And that thought lingers with him. He carries it to the field. I'm, gl- I'm glad that you said that he grabbed the garbage can. Did it fall over and something bang on the bottom of it? Well, yeah, I, it just, I, I think this is going to be a cloud hovering over them all year. And I, I think I, and they're a year older and that, that pitching staff is a little weaker. I don't know. I, I I still think they're really good. I think they're good, but I I don't think they're going to win 100. I mean, they seem like they win 105 games every year. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, and they don't seem invincible, for sure. But I still think they're really good. It just speaks to, we said this a couple podcasts ago, you look at the American League, and yes, the Yankees are absolutely loaded. But the American League is pretty wide open. Um, I think the Rays are going to be really good. I think we've everyone has been underestimating them. And I think... Outside of that, like, is there a sure thing? I have no idea what to expect from Boston. We don't know what to expect in the AL Central. Um, it seems like we pump up the Angels every winter only for them to fall flat. So I, and we should mention Oakland because they always fly under the radar. But my point is, I, I just, I think the American League's wide open and we're going to, this is a Cleveland Indians based podcast. We should say, as we do every single time we get together. They should do more. They should <laughs> add to this roster and take advantage, capitalize on how open it is. And I know what's going to happen. They are not going to make a move, and it's going to get to July, and they'll trade for Starling Marte, and he'll shore up that outfield. But why spend the first three months of the year when you actually have a division race on your hands this season dealing with areas of weakness that are so easily identified as areas of weakness two months before the season starts. Yeah. Well, the thing, I, yes, yes. I also don't know that there is a slam dunk outside of, and even Castellanos had areas where he just was not a true impact sort of hitter in Detroit. Uh, maybe that's some of that is psychological because apparently he just really hated hitting in Comerica park. Um, he might be the the guy that makes a a big difference in your outfield, and you know that if you add him. And then you got Marcelo Zuna, who the numbers have been very meh. You look under the hood, 
there are some very pleasant things there, but that's been the case the last two years and nothing has changed. And he really, yeah. you really go back and you say he only had one true, really good year and the defense ain't getting any better from him. And we come back to Puig, which we spent uh, 30 minutes screaming about last podcast who fits and should fit comfortably into what they, they can offer or should be able to offer. But we also both agree that he is not, he's not a guy that, that changes the course of the division probably all by himself. He's probably a no. two, two and a half win player, a little bit above average, which this team needs above average players. Mm-hmm. And they need guys that they can at least look at what the floor is for their production and feel good about it, particularly in the outfield. But I also don't think that simply signing him is going to win the offseason. No. Good ad. And there's Good also the ad. trade market, don't forget. Sure. Yeah, we don't and know it would what's be nice. I mean, Marte and... instead of just waiting until June or July, you can shore up the outfield now and maybe some other leak uh, surfaces that you need to fix at that point. But again, we've talked about all this. We don't need to continue harping on it. I just wanted to somehow, it was a stretch, but relate this back to the Indians. Do you think... I've seen some polls, but do you think an average fan base or a fan base like the Indians where they're just eager to win a championship of any kind, knowing what this drought is, do you think they would be in any way supportive of if it came out that the Indians were trying to to cheat the system in any sort of way? That Do you think they would be okay with that if it resulted in a better performance? Pure speculation. Um, I I would guess it probably would be pretty split. I I think, I mean, seventy one years is seventy one years, and so I think because of that, I don't even mean not what they would vote publicly in a poll with their friends watching. I'm talking about inside their own brain, where they don't have to reveal exactly the the morals of of their fandom. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, I think the majority would say, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes. And I think a lot of that is spurred on by the, the drought. I mean, it would be different if the Indians won it in 95 and 97. And now it's like, okay, you know, it's, it's been 23 years and they've had some close calls, but they haven't been able to get over that hump. And, you know, they'll never be the 90s Indians. It'd be a lot different. <laughs> but, I mean, look at how many close calls the Indians have had over the last 71 years and um, you know, I think because of that, I mean, I mean, I think, I think people would have done anything for any of these teams at the point when the Cavs finally won it. Um, because I, I also think the perfect scenario for that first Cleveland championship since 1964, let's be real. It probably would have been a Brown Super Bowl title. That's, you know, the Browns are this city and it's definitely a football town. And I think if people could choose, they would have picked that first, but I also think that most Cleveland fans had reached a point where they know beggars can't be choosers and it had been 52 years and they'll take what they can get. And it was still a cool storyline. Um, and it's not like, I mean, look, we don't look at Kyrie Irving the same way we did when he was in Cleveland and hit the shot. And we saw how quickly that group fizzled and it's not like the Cavs had a dynasty. Um, so it's, it was, it was a, it was an incredible storyline, and like that stretch of a few weeks was an incredible story, and LeBron's comeback was an incredible story. But it wasn't the perfect story. It didn't have the perfect beginning, middle, and end. 
And I think because of that, I, I with how desperate fans get when it's been a long time, I, yeah, I, I, I think people would do just about anything to bring a World Series title to Cleveland. It's been, it was 1948. Even people who were alive at that point don't remember it. I would say my biggest gripe with the Browns is that they have not tried to cheat to get better. But then I remember they actually had GMs texting the sidelines and doing all kinds of illegal shit. So they tried and failed miserably. Uh, so that's pretty much what you can expect. Would you like to do a random inning of the day? Do you have one for me? I do. Oh, I gosh. do. I'm nervous. Um, we take this back to... 93, 94, although technically he also played with the Indians back in 1990 as well. Uh, But this man, who is now 59 years old, came from Puerto Rico. He was... See, he made his rookie debut at the age of 20 with the Dodgers in 1981. His first full season in the big leagues came in 1984, again with the Dodgers. He spent parts of three seasons with the Indians in 1990, 1993, and 1994. Candy Maldonado? It is Candy Maldonado. Wow. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of recollection about pre-94. Even 94 is kind of iffy. Um, maybe it's because they never made a, one of those VHS tapes for, <laughs> for those seasons that started with 95 with, uh, Wahoo, what a finish. Um, but I remember Candy Maldonado just in doing research for books and stuff, uh, because he, I think I talked to him once too, but I feel like I recently told this story on this podcast, but when Manny Ramirez made his, I think it was his second career game. And in, in uh, Yankees, old Yankee Stadium, he thought he had hit his first Major League home run. But the ball bounced off the warning track and skipped up into the stands. And so he's jogging and jogs around second, heading to third base. And the dugout is just cracking up because Manny thinks he had a home run. It's actually a ground rule double. And Candy Maldonado was like giving him the most shit and was telling him. I think he was the one who was like putting up the stop sign and holding up two fingers to say like a double means you get two bases, not four. Um, and yeah, I, a lot of people cite him as like a really good veteran presence in the clubhouse at that time, as that team was morphing from young, inexperienced talent into ready to win talent. I know he had really good influence on like Carlos Baerga, Manny Ramirez. So, uh, Candy Maldonado, that's a good one. I had a more of a, in my mind, I thought he had played more of a factor in those teams than he did. And in reality, he didn't play that much at all over parts of three years, only played 225 games with the Indians hit 32 home runs, 777 OPS. Even in 94, he only played in uh, 42 games for the Indians with a 768 OPS. But the funny thing is in that year, he actually hit five home runs. We had a 196 batting average. So imagine at the time, 1994, he's hitting 196. You're thinking this guy blows but in reality, his OPS plus was 99. So he had a, a 196 average, but because of his 333 uh, on base percentage and 435 slugging percentage, he was hovering right around league average as far as OPS goes. So if you view him through the prism of now, it wasn't uh, it wasn't all that bad of a contribution. 
But I was looking, I, I didn't remember that he was initially with them in 90 and then came back in 93, but they had signed him uh, in the offseason before 1990, so he was only with them for a year. And then he came back. He was actually traded, let me see, traded by the Cubs to the Indians. Do you remember who he was traded for? I have no idea. Glenn Allen Hill. Glenn Allen Hill. He was one of my favorites. He, uh... Because when he he was with the Cubs and you'd come home from school and you'd get WGNs, so you could watch every <laughs> Cubs game in the afternoon. And I feel like maybe at that point in his career was he maybe he was only facing lefties. He was a platoon guy, but he crushed every pitch. Like I remember the one he hit onto the what do they call them? The places behind Wrigley Field. Um, Across the street? Yeah, yeah, rooftops. I don't know if it's still the longest home run in Wrigley Field history, but I think at the time it was. Um, it was fun to watch. So the amazing thing, and now we're just going down a Glen Allen Hill rabbit hole, the amazing thing about his career is he spent parts of 13 years in the major leagues, had an 804 career OPS, so he's 12% above league average over his career. It's a really long time to play in the major leagues. And yet his career high at bats in a season was 497 he that was the only time in his career over 13 major league seasons which he even got over 400 career at bats so for most of his career he was playing as a fourth outfielder pinch hitter guy that would play some of the time but not all the time only one time did he ever come close to even being a regular player but he spent 13 years in the majors doing that so good job by him not think we would be talking about Glenn Allen Hill in this podcast. Well, that's why we are the best. You can subscribe to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to subscribe to your podcast. And, of course, we thank each and every single week the, the few members that help support the podcast over at Anchor. If you'd like to support the podcast and help keep this thing going, you can go over to Anchor. You can find the links at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, and, of course, at Selby is Godcast on Twitter. And you guys are always jumping in the DMs. We do appreciate it. You had mentioned uh, an idea for a future podcast, just looking into the favorites in the American League. We'd also gotten a request, and it's fitting because we spent a lot of this podcast talking about data and analytics and stats. We'd also gotten a request from someone to spend some time in a future podcast breaking down the important things that an average fan would need to know and why we think they are important. So I think we could probably spend some time talking about all those stats that the, com the commenters in your articles absolutely hate and wish you would stop using, damn it! <laughs> if he's listening, I, I do support his, his readership, and I know he's, he's a big fan, and, and he reads a lot of things, so it's, hey, to each their own. Um, everybody has their own preferences, and I certainly understand that, but that particular article, uh, don't think it was too much of an inhibiting factor on, on reading the piece. But, hey, Steve Carsey went 10-2 and two in 1999 with the Indians, so that's all you need to know. And you Relief, keep that wins, and losses. <laughs> Until next week when we break down Julian Tavares' win-loss record in 1995. He also <laughs> went 10-2, and two, I think. Uh, until next week, be good, everybody. We hope you have a W this week, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
The Selvius Godcast, featuring Zach Meisel and TJ Zuppi, is presented by our supporters at Anchor. To help support the podcast, visit anchor.fm slash Godcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do, be sure to leave us a five-star review. And if you have suggestions, drop us a DM on Twitter at Godcast. Thanks for listening. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.